Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, lands which were never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalog of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Social Work Stories podcast. I am Dr. Min Fox, and I am here with my lovely friend and colleague, Liz Murphy. Hi, Liz. Hello. Hello, Mim. Hello, everyone. How you doing, How? Liz? Yeah, good. Sun's out. I'm just enjoying it for its I know. brief momentary appearance. I know, I know. We've come through a bit of a cold uh, winter, it feels like, and spring has come, which is really nice. It is. It yeah. is. And what do we have in store for our listeners today, Mim? This is, um, this is a really interesting conversation, Liz, that uh, myself and our producer, Ben Joseph, had with um, a clinician who is engaged in um, narrative therapy. And Liz, uh, you, you know, and our listeners know, we've dipped into narrative therapy in a number of episodes now, right? Um, thinking back to episode 57 with Deanne Dale talking about social justice therapies. And, um, and uh, it was... Uh, you know, and then I think most more recently as well, we've dipped into it in the drug and alcohol space. You know, narrative therapy is one of those modalities that kind of keeps raising its head, which I'm loving. And uh, and this episode, this clinician really goes deep into uh, why and how he uses narrative therapy and how he um, uses it with his outreach, particularly with mums who have had their children permanently removed. He does. And he the other lens in which he works with Mim is disenfranchised grief. Again, another type of grief that we've talked about several times in our episodes. So there's the narrative therapy, there's a disenfranchised grief. And I also like what he talks about in relation to the importance of documenting client stories. Yeah, I do too. And that's really important in that social justice component to narrative therapy, right? So I'm really excited to get into it with you, Liz. Let's, um, let's let everyone hear from our clinician and then, um, and then let's have our discussion. Let's do it. So I come from, I would say my go-to modalities and, and way I work is always through narrative work and storytelling. Um, I think that started, I think my mum's got videotape of me like reading like Peter Pan or something, is it? Like, but not, I recited it. I, had, I was actually reciting because I learned from cassettes. I couldn't read. I was like three, but I was just reciting. So this idea of storytelling has been like ingrained. Um, and then I actually studied theatre when I left high school and I used to perform and, and do a lot of theatre. Um, and so I studied that at tertiary level. Um, but I, what I realized, it wasn't the performance I liked so much, but it was the text and mainly Greek texts and Shakespeare and, and your language based text. Um, and so then went into uni, did psych. Um, and then I kind of found more philosophy, really. I found philosophy in, in my degree um, and started reading 
a lot of that and that really informs my practice, I would say. And I guess in, if you follow philosophy through to contemporary philosophy, you're looking at postmodern philosophy and post-structural philosophy. And that's really what's at the base of narrative therapy, contemporary narrative therapy. So it was all led, all roads kind of led <laughs> to narrative therapy, I think, um, in doing that. Um, and that kind of led me into postgrad and, and studying. I came across narrative therapy and, and then studied it specifically as a master's um, with the Dulwich Centre down in Adelaide. Um, and I guess from there, uh, yeah, just kind of worked in. I went overseas to the UK um, and was doing a lot of community-based work there, um, really kind of grassroots, quite rural work um, over there. And I think that's really when I, I really started, uh, I guess, understanding the idea about documenting stories. In a, in a sense, it almost feels like a kind of journalism aspect to it or there's something in in documenting stories rereading stories sharing stories and the power that that has and the power that can give to people whose stories often aren't documented and shared and retold um so i think a lot of the work i did in the uk in particular that's when i, I started really developing that practice of, of trying to document stories um and i'm not sure if a lot of therapists um might r- relate in some way but sometimes it feels like therapy goes so quick it just comes through like a big wind, like, and then you, your clients come and gone and it almost feels like you're trying to grab things out of the wind almost. And I think that's kind of my sense that I feel is in terms of documenting it, that's the grabbing of the whatever's coming out and getting blown by the wind. We just grab whatever we can and put it and document it in some way. And it's about, I don't know, acknowledging it and, and um, yeah, documenting or solidifying it in some way. So it's not so fleeting. Um, there's something about that practice, I think, um, both as a practitioner and being able to see how I work, but also grabbing these stories and being able to document them in some way. It gets political, I think. Um, I think I'd probably phrase it as the politics of storytelling. I think that's usually how I phrase it. Um, And if we take these ideas really extreme, let's just do that for the sake of doing that, um, is I think whenever we're speaking, like we're speaking right now, for example, um, if we take it really extreme, any utterance, any, any spoken word or any documented word is a political act in a really extreme version of this so anytime we're speaking or anytime we're privileging one thing over another that's a political act so if we're telling the story it's important as a i would say post-structuralist post-modern kind of philosophy to question why that story is being privileged over any other story that could be told at that time and maybe it's still the case that that's the right that's the right story to be told and privileged at that time so we tell it but without we need to consider that is whose story are we telling and for what purpose, what reason, and whose story should be privileged at that time. Um, and I think that's across the board with any storytelling. You could look at that, you could analyse that through movies and why movies tell certain stories or not, or music and any kind of arts or anything like that. It's As soon as you start looking through things of that frame, anytime you see something, it's actually a political act, whether we like it or not, or whether intentionally it is or not, and why something is being privileged over something else at that time. Um, it's a really important question to ask, I think. And as a therapist and as a clinician, whose stories are we telling? I do a lot of family work. So whose voices are we privileging in, in, in the room? Is the little eight-year-old's voice being privileged? Or is it just mum's voice being privileged or dad's? Or is it mine as a clinician's getting privileged? And who and why? And, and who's, you know, um, whose voices aren't being heard or are and, and how we give voice to usually the ones that are a bit subjugated or a bit kind of um, not heard so much. So, Yeah. I suppose in some of my work in the UK, um, I assisted in, in setting up this project where we just supported mums who had kids permanently removed from their care. So there wasn't, they had no PR, they really had no right to even see their kids. Um, 
And so a lot of them were adopted. And once they were adopted, the, the birth mum had no right to, to kind of see the kids at all until they were 18 and decided to find them. Um, and what I found in working with these mums, I would say the vast majority of them were homeless, were, were either in hostels and kind of getting thrown around hostels or were living on the street um, or were living with family and couch surfing and things like that. The vast majority were on some substance. Um, so alcohol was a big one. I had one mum who used to inhale aerosol cans, used to steal them from from the shop and just, I think, you know, for her at one point it was about 30 aerosol cans a day right into her her poor lip and tongue. Oh. Um, and I like being in the UK, there is quite, there's um, much more accessibility in crack cocaine. Australia, we probably have ice more so. They don't have ice over there, but they have crack cocaine over there. So that's really, you know, crack cocaine and heroin are really quite um, insidious. Um and really the biggest thing with these mums is this grief or what you call disenfranchised grief. It's this grief that no one actually acknowledges and society all around are almost trying to convince them that they're not grieving or that they shouldn't re- or they have no right to grieve almost because it's almost their fault that their kids are removed and they should have known better or whatever that is or it's the best thing for the kids that they're placed elsewhere. And a lot of the mums I worked with understood that. They knew they couldn't look after their kids but that doesn't mean they're not grieving and I mean, harrowing grief. Like I'm not a parent and I don't pretend like I even pretend to know what it's like to have a kid removed from your care, but I try and it's horrible. Like even just the thought of that, imagining that. And I have spoken to a lot of mums who have had their kids removed and it's just that, that hollowness that comes with that grief is just, I don't know, kind of, I don't even have a word to describe that. And so this project that that we kind of set up and we're working on was to support these mums. And we supported them in two ways, the practical way and therapeutic way. And often I, I talk about, there's a discourse in, in counseling where people often say, and I think it applies in most cases where they're not quite ready for counseling. They have to have a certain level of stability to be actually engage in counseling. And I think that comes from kind of Maslow's needs and all of this kind of stuff, right? which I think for most cases is very important Um, and clients need to be kind of at a certain point and have a certain life stability almost to be able to engage in counseling meaningfully. But with these mums, I found it was almost the opposite in the sense of like, let's say I met a mum who was living in, in the middle of a forest and had no will to live, wasn't, didn't want to engage. She was still alive and she wasn't, she wasn't suicidal, I would say, but just had no, um, reason to live, had, had, didn't have her kids anymore, had no engagement with life. And until I sat there in a chair that was half sinking into the ground with the fire, um, you know, and she's cooking some like, I don't know, whatever the sausages she stole from the shop or something like that. And she's sitting there and we're sitting in the middle of the forest and having a chat about just life and what she's been through and me documenting that we had to do that therapeutic work for her to actually engage back into life and have any reason to even have a house because she didn't care anymore. She had like, yeah, maybe that's a good word is that care. She didn't care about herself or her life and had no reason to engage back in it because everything was lost. And until there was some therapeutic work done to re-engage with life, it's a very existential type of work. I think that she wasn't, she wasn't even going to engage with the practical stuff then to get a house and to maybe sort out her benefits and whatever that was, there was no motivation to do that. So until there was some work on, on that level, um, yeah, she had, there was no engagement. 
in in, in wanting in life really and in wanting to to sort her own life out or, or make a better life for herself I guess um, and so I think for me that was really important to I don't know reach out to these women um, and like I said most of them were homeless and living on the street is to find them we would find them not they come to us we would find them um, and really just support them on those two fronts that therapeutic side but also that practical side so we're talking benefits often their benefits were all over the place and have just no money ever um, we've got substance use there and we've got um, like yeah just housing um, and there's grief and just all this is lifestyle of, of just you know trauma and sadness and just horribleness um and often barriers we would find on the practical front i guess one story um that i'd mentioned was i had kind of marched this mum down to um what would be the uh i guess the housing institute the like public housing institute um and the workers knew her and they didn't even acknowledge her as they didn't even make eye contact with her, didn't even address her. They said straight to me that we're not going to house her. She's been here before, like, forget it. And we walked out and this mum was like, see, I told you so. <laughs> like, um, and she knew she was trying to convince me not to go the whole time because she knew we would have this outcome. Um, and and we kept trying. And, I, and with that mum in particular, she was the one who was kind of inhaling um, aerosols as well. When I left her, and I'm talking, it was probably about four or five months of intensive work with her. I would see her minimum three times a week. I would see her. Um, often I'd, I'd just go out first thing in the morning, find her, round her up from, from the forest, and we'd go and do services, whatever we could do. We'd go to like a community center and sit there and do therapeutic work, whatever we could do. Um, but minimum I'd see her three times a week for about a good few months, like probably you know around four months or so. When I left her, she was in a council house and hadn't had any aerosols for three weeks. Um, but I think what that highlights is one, the intensity of the work is it's not a let's meet for one with these mums in particular of how all encompassing it is in their life that um, it's not meet once a week for 50 minutes or even fortnightly. It's every day or every other day for extended periods of time. And then you can pull back on that. And then we did do that, but it's, um, it's really almost intensive, really quite intensive work um, for them. And if you can form, and really I think a lot of therapy and me coming from, um, I don't know, more uh, maybe a counselling route, I suppose, it's more relationship-based. It's really relationship-based. And it was most workers, I think, yeah, most workers I think with these mums would just tell them to F off, like <laughs> but off they go. Um, and then that just puts a bigger gap between them and the service, I think. So it is really about meeting them physically and psychologically where they are, forming that relationship and then working backwards from there instead of the other way around in terms of expecting them to come to us, I guess. Um, and who who hears these voices? Like this is a mum in a tent, <laughs> you know, um, all these homeless women. And I think, um, and I'm sure the same happens for, for homeless men. I have worked quite a lot with, well, not as much as with mums, but with a couple of dads who were about who have had kids removed from their care and the same grief applies <laughs> like they're, they're in just as much grief as as the mums as well um uh yeah so i think there are there is scope and and work to be done um and maybe more so maybe in australia as well with and this isn't to say maybe there's a disclaimer here about i understand completely where the services are about focusing on children and getting children in safe places. That is completely the first priority. Um, but it's not the end of end of the road or end of the, the work there is that these, and I've, and I've seen even here in this type of work that a lot of mums 
then once kids are removed, there isn't that support for them. And we're talking grief, we're talking, and also a lot of these mums have got trauma histories. They really do. So we've got trauma compounded with trauma, compounded with really intense grief, and they do drop out and they they drop out of services and they drop out of everything, lots of substance use, lots of homelessness and, and these kind of social issues. Um, and I think being able to, I don't know, there's something about the power of being able to document their stories. Um, there was a quote, and I'll probably butcher it off the top of my head, but there was a quote from a mum who had been through that and she wrote a book. And she said, what counsellors need to understand is that they need to understand that there's in no way can we actually make things better. It's just about acknowledging what we've been through without this guise or pretending that we can just go in and make everything better because we can't. Maybe we can over time, but but that's not almost the intention. The intention is just to hear them, to acknowledge these people as people, not disenfranchise them. And just hear them, listen to them, document their stories and privilege those stories, tell those stories um, because they're really important and really heartbreaking and, and inspiring and all of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's hard almost to find those stories and to be able to document them and, and get those voices and privilege them, um, I think, but um, worthwhile when it happens. So the one, because I find in this work, and I think it's just therapy and counselling in general, often we don't get closure, I think. The longer the work, like, you know, you get little bits of closure, but you never know long-term where a lot of the people we work with end up. Some of them, it could be really great. Some of them you don't. But I think often a lot of therapists, or maybe it's just me and mine, that you're left with a, a lot of question marks in terms of the people you work with. And you don't always get this beautiful closure that you just want. It's almost like narrative closure or something. It's not It's not your textbook narrative, um, uh, like what do you call it? like poetic justice and that kind of stuff at the end where everyone lives happily ever after, or there's this like nice ending to it that I don't think that happens very often. But I, I think, I think it's about professionals documenting the story because we've got more power than our clients really. We're the educated people um, who have the power of a profession. And if we're documenting something, that's why a support letter if, has more power than if a parent just wrote a support, a letter to say all the things they've done or a professional writes a support letter, which one has more power? The professional letter has more power, like always, um, and whether we, we pull that all apart. Um, but so there is, I think there's something really valuable and powerful about a, a professional using our, our level of privilege and our education to document these stories and to push that voice forward. That really should be our intention, I think, um, and giving giving the power back almost Um to to privilege that story and using our power to to be able to document them and document it well and use that um to their support really yeah in particular with these mums who get really disenfranchised no one's witnessing them um they're not seen they're they're like homeless and and you know dropped out of society they're not being seen and i think that's to see them is that that's therapeutic (laughs) for them to be seen to be witnessed um, I think that word in, in narrative therapy is often, often used of that idea of witnessing. Um, but not just me witnessing as well, then I've got a, then a resp- I feel a responsibility then once I've witnessed and I've documented to let other people witness because that's really important, you know. Um, yeah, although I think on, on the side, sometimes I can feel, especially these stories are so heartbreaking that um, it can feel like, you know, sharing these stories is really um although I feel responsible to do so, 
is you feel like that person at the party who just comes in with like these really sad stories. And, and I think maybe there's a wider scope of, of people not really wanting to hear this because it's, it's confronting and sad and heartbreaking. And, um, it really is. Um, and that's why I think therapy is often in closed doors and, and, you know, um, private, it's very privatized. Um, and there's reasons for that as well, but I think there's something in being able to maybe publicize it to a degree. So these stories are witnessed wider you know it was like because david denbra who is um the kind of uh, uh is it manager's not quite the right word but coordinator of, of the dulwich center down in in adelaide um one of his really great books is collective narrative practice and that's probably where i learned a lot of this in terms of that collecting documents and adding to documents creating documents i think they use the word testimony as well as having these ideas of collected testimonies as an archive of history is i think that's the other word. it's like an archive of of people's experiences and documenting history um and then it, that could almost circle back around to political thing of why we're documenting it and, and what are we documenting and what is the archive of history that we're wanting to document and privilege um yeah pretty fueled kind of stuff there yeah in terms of that um i guess that politics of, of narratives and storytelling and documentation and and um, whose voice gets gets privileged in that documentation? I think. Yeah. For me personally, I try and I think this is a what's the word I'm looking for? Is it affirmative action? Is that the word I'm looking for? In terms of, I consider myself really quite privileged. I really am. Um, I'm really quite educated. Um, I grew up in Australia. Um, and for me as an affirmative action, I think that's the right phrase that I'm, I'm using there of almost I feel responsible and I have a responsibility to use that. I'm very lucky. I'm just very, very lucky. And to use that, how I benefited from that luckness um, and to use that to then serve those who are less lucky and less privileged than me. I think for me personally, really, uh, importantly, that's what's fueling my work and that's what's um, the focus is there is for me and maybe people disagree and have, have other ideas and that's completely okay. But for me, I consider myself extremely lucky and extremely privileged. And for me, I have a responsibility then to to do something with that um, and finding a, a, an alignment. I think having my history of storytelling and, and, and um, things like that 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 felt that feels the right way of, of going about it almost or the intuitive almost organic way of, of me finding of doing that um and what i've kind of fallen into of of using that privilege and that luck almost to to privilege those who, who don't have that and to support them um and i think maybe there's another whole conversation about you know colonial practices and this idea of maybe going in, I think a lot of workers can go in with the intention of helping, but it, 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 it doesn't, um, or it's, it's misguided maybe, or it's not from the inside, it's from the outside in with this expectation of how we're going to help you and, and, and what we're us as the privileged people saying what you need to be supported. Um, so I think that's, and I think that's another whole conversation as well, but being really mindful of that and really being hyper uh, aware of what my biases are and what my privilege is and to serve those who are less privileged and who are really struggling um, for their benefit and f 
from the inside out, I guess. Yeah. Nim, I want to start with the documentation of stories. This particular therapist really, really helped me to understand the importance that it can actually play, you know, for something that sometimes, as he even mentioned, some of us, including myself, can feel tedious at times. You know, you can have a really intensive session with a client and then the idea of coming back and documenting it can, you know, it can feel like it's hard work. However, when we, when I think about it in relation to what this therapist says about the privileging of voices and the importance of having some voices that are often not heard, documented in a way that I would imagine strengthens their story, strengthens the work in which this particular therapist is doing, is so important. I mean, what did you think about that? Oh, look, it's really interesting, right? Because coming from a hospital background, it's about making it, summarising it and making it as uh, coherent as possible, but in not in too lengthy a way because your multidisciplinary colleagues are never going to read through page upon page upon page of social work notes. Um, and outside of this recording, this clinician did say to me that he had 30 to 40 pages worth of notes when he actually was thinking about someone's complete story. And I think uh, it's a completely different approach to documentation. And I think you're right in positioning within storytelling, which is what the clinician does as well, right? Is that actually this is about representing authentically someone's lived experience and and their life um, on, on paper. And I think that that component is something that in the hustle and bustle and the quick caseloads and depending on the context that you work, we do forget that I think sometimes. Beyond the paper, Mim, I also think it's really worth considering questioning whose voices we are privileging, especially his point about working with families, I thought was really interesting. Whose voices are we listening to or or privileging? Whose aren't being heard? And what great questions to be asked in supervision, right? As a supervisor, that would be really useful. Why is it that you're privileging this particular voice? Yeah, that's right. Session, that's right. That's right. And he, I think, refers to it as the politics of listening, which is something that uh, we know quite well around in the podcast audio space. Is about uh, who's listening to the stories, not just who's telling stories, but who's listening to the stories, and what's the purpose of that, uh, and what is the potential consequences or unintended outcomes of that privilege, right? Uh, and I think the onus is us on us as critical social workers to always be having that perspective. What is hap- What is the end game with the story that I am now representing? And what a beautiful modality to be working with uh, women who are, you know, homeless who have had their children assumed. Talk about a silenced voice, Liz. And, you know, it reminds me of a work of a colleague that I um, had many years ago who actually looked at the language of that was used in policies when babies were assumed from care from Australian hospitals versus the language that is used when a baby dies. Ah. And the, and, and the, 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 the policies around when a baby dies or the procedural manuals around when a baby dies took the lens of grief, 
Whereas the procedural manuals that were being used for when a baby is assumed from care, like many of these women, was quite, um, was more in a child protection mode, quite different, quite different. Was it more judgmental, Liz? What was the, or assumptive? Look, I think, I think yes. I think it also had that impact on staff as well. Yeah. So it was mother blaming. Yeah. In a nutshell, really. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that is probably what I really appreciated about the the work of this therapist, that he was privileging the story of the mothers who had had their children removed. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, it was very powerful. And I also enjoyed his um, his use of disenfranchised grief. And and again, we mentioned in the intro that this was a particular grief model. It's from Kenneth Doker's work. Yeah, that really is appropriate for working with um, you know this this particular client group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk just for a second about going into the forest and meeting with the homeless woman. I mean. This took me back to um, colleagues who were working in youth outreach teams, Liz, and how they'd go and find the homeless kids um, in the inner city areas and work with them on the ground before they could actually get them into some sort of therapeutic space. And I think it's quite an amazing form of work that uh, we, unless you're embedded working in a team like that, you, you can lose connection with it. You can forget that that's even happening out there. But there are teams that do that really hard work where they're meeting. It's literally meeting the client where they're at, right? Like getting there, sitting on the ground, um, really speaking with them about their lived experience and what they're, what's happening around them every day. I wanted to be a fly on the wall when he was sitting beside this woman at the fire because I yes. think he said at some stage this is a, a, a mother who had given up on life. Yeah. So I wanted to hear the conversation that engaged her where she was at. And I, I don't know, like I, I also think about Carmel Flaskus' work about how you weave in a sense of hope in that too. Yes. Um, and look, I'm imagining you do whatever you can in that first 90 minutes of sitting by the fire with this person. But I think later on in his his discussion, he talked about the woman with the lived experience who said to him, you can't actually, or wrote, you can't actually fix this. You can't actually fix what's happened. But certainly as, as social workers, we know, but what we can do is bear witness. And as this particular therapist says, and also capture and, and bear witness and listen to this voice and privilege this voice and their story. Yeah, and the the moment that really made that so uh, evident to me, Liz, in this in the telling here was when he took the woman into the housing office, and the person behind the desk didn't even look at her. And what struck me was just how insanely invisible she was. It wasn't even just her story that was invisible. Her presence, her absolute, she is standing there on the other side of a desk and she is rendered invisible. And I think that remembering the power that we have in representation at that moment is just, and the privilege that we hold in being able to represent those invisible stories is just enormous. enormous. And how wonderful for her that this therapist saw that. That's right. That that actually saw evidence of what she was saying, I am not going into the housing anymore because they don't do anything with me. They don't. That's right. And he actually saw that. 
and then was able, as you say, to work with her and advocate um, um, for her. Mim, it also reminded me of the importance of remembering that things shift and change with our clients. Mm. You know, like I'm thinking about how despairing it must have been at first to start working with this particular woman. But through the consistent and intensive approach that this particular social worker was taking, he kept showing up, which I just think is like 90%. Of, yeah, right? absolutely. You just keep on showing up. <laughs> yeah. Right. But also knowing that at different times in a, in a person's life, things can significantly change and for the better, as was evident in his work with that woman. That's right. That's right. That actually, uh, and, that's, and that's why we have to kind of step back from that gatekeeper or that disciplinary or judgmental position because that's a stagnant fixed position it doesn't actually allow for movement it doesn't allow for the passage of time and for growth and for different life experiences to come and change you as a person right Uh, whereas coming at it from a witnessing perspective actually does allow for that it's a much more open stance to be approaching someone with I think yeah yeah so, Mim, like I, now you've got me really curious about this type of work. I, I mean, I've heard of intensive family work, but I'm really curious about what it looks like in the Australian context as well. Do we have social workers going out there in the, well, we would call it the bush, you know, or how, how are they working with people who are homeless? Um, yeah, we absolutely I, have those social workers out there. And so this is a call out. If you are doing this sort of work where you are meeting people where they're at physically, geographically, and you are sitting there in that space, not in, in you know, whether it be uh, in an inner city space, whether it's out in the bush, whether wherever it is, if you are doing this outreach work, drop us a line, like let us know. We'd love to hear a story from you about how that's working in Australia. I'm really conscious, Liz, that when I think about that woman in the forest in the UK, Um, I'm thinking about the bitter cold automatically, yeah, and how that's going to impact on her. But as we know, uh, global warming has well and truly come along and climate change has made a massive difference, right? So the UK has now just had a heat wave that they would could never have predicted. We've just gone through a bitter winter and incredible floods that we couldn't predict, right? Um, I am kind of uh, aware that there's a a flattening of those experiences happening where we're all globally experiencing real changes in our temperature and in our environments that is therefore impacting on those people who are most vulnerable, right? Those people who don't have the shelter, who don't have that support around them. Um, I'm going to, you know, do a pitch now for eco-social work. And if you want to come at it from a theoretical perspective, eco-social work and the work that has been done over the last number of years has actually really shone that light that social work needs to respond in these um, temperate climates and in these really difficult implications for people in their social worlds. So hearing from people in Australia now about how that looks would be really fascinating. Look, it would. It And, you know, just doing another full circle back to the advocacy role of this therapist, as you were talking, I was reflecting on, right, so that now has become another string in our advocacy bow that we need to actually um, advocate on behalf of our clients because of issues that are totally related to the environment now. The That's experiences, right. as you say, extreme heat, 
Um, and you extreme know, heat, extreme cold, whatever it is. Mm. They're, they're, well, you know, our, our clients are often the canaries in the coal mine, right? And so they will often be yeah. experiencing what you describe before those of us who are far more privileged. So, yes, I would love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're doing this sort of work, get in touch. Uh, but in the meantime, I really appreciate this uh, clinician sharing their story with us, Liz. It's so interesting to hear about a group uh, such as mums who've had their children removed who are so clearly sidelined and to hear about that really important narrative work that's happening or in that space. Mm. A great reminder of the importance of narrative therapy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, jump on and get in touch with us, everyone. It would be great to hear from you. Liz, have a great couple of weeks ahead of you. I'm heading off to New Zealand to do some um, interesting work over there, talking to colleagues about all things social work education. So it's an well, interesting time. Gosh. Well, whilst you're over in New Zealand working, I'm actually heading out to Menindee Lakes. It's a series of lakes that only get water in every so often. So I'm going off there to observe and look at the bird life. Oh and, my gosh. You know, get in touch with my eco social work side. <laughs> Beautiful. And Enjoy. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.